Choke points. Let's go. Grab bag edition. One of my favorite editions, choke points. And Chris is here with several quick hits as we head into the holiday weekend. You ever notice that the grab bags usually come on short weeks like this? Yes, I do notice that. (laughs) Not saying there's anything going on, but I'm going to start off with a listener question, uh, which is really how Choke Points began, starting to answer people questions uh, that I've received from time to time. This one came in from Mike in Edmonds during the show yesterday. Uh, he asked me what about what he calls the phantom overpass of 405 at Northeast 100th Street in Kirkland. Why is it there? He wrote, What's for what use? He asked me. So as I've driven under this overpass, I've always thought it was like a pedestrian only because I've never seen any vehicles on it or whatever but it is a little wider than your typical pedestrian bridge. Uh, And so I was like, okay, well, let me check into it for you because Mike told me there are gates on either end of it. And I'd never been up on the sides of it uh, on 100th. I've just only driven under it. So I reached out to the city of Kirkland for a definitive answer. And the overpass not only serves as a way for pedestrians to cross the freeway, but it is also an emergency bypass for first responders. Really? Yes, because they're the next nearest way to cross 405 is either up at 116th or down at 85th. So if you're in those neighborhoods right there, this provides a really quick back and forth across I it the freeway. A overbuilt for a pedestrian yeah, overpass. Yeah, and, and so that's it. Yeah, it's a it's wow. a it's a bypass for first responders. Uh, and so that's a very interesting dual use of that. And I've just never been there when I've seen somebody going back and forth across it, but that's what it's for. Uh, so, Mike, no longer a phantom. Uh, question for you. I got that answered. But this is something that I like to do. I answer listener questions like this for choke points. It could be something as small as this, something really big. Always a link at mynorthwest.com or the state roofing text line at 888-973-5476. We're going to start beefing up choke points going into next year, uh, doing a lot more stuff on digital and things like that. And so, yeah, we're going to go way back to our roots to get a lot more uh, listener questions answered on that. So, Mike, thank you for that. Now let's move on to Thanksgiving. A quick little... uh, list of my go-tos as you head out, starting with the airport, where our good friend Sam Campbell is out this morning. Spot Saver is already full for tomorrow, so if you haven't gotten on that, uh, that's the way you get in line early by putting in you know 15-minute window on when you think you might make it to TSA, and you get a dedicated spot, and you usually go right past the line. Wow. It's a great thing that they offer. Reminder, hit that up three days before your flight to save time in that security line. So if you, say, have family heading home over the weekend, or you're going to be heading back over the weekend, go to that spot saver right away within three days. Put in your information and get your spot. Uh, You can find a link there at mynorthwest.com. Now, if you're picking and dropping off people at the airport, uh, I've been preaching this one for years, think opposite. Use the terminal level opposite of what you're doing. So if you're picking somebody up, use the departures deck up top. Dropping somebody off, use the bottom arrivals deck. There's usually less traffic going the opposite way, though uh, Ursula told me yesterday it doesn't quite work as much as well because everyone <laughs> kind of knows that hack now. So, But that's a good one. If you're trying to use the garage to park, Drive to the far south end before heading up. The far end always fills up last because everybody gets there. They panic like, oh, I got to get up there, get up there, get up there. And then, no, go all the way to the end and then go up. There's usually a few spots. By the way, uh, SEA is offering free parking for 90 minutes this weekend uh, from, what, 8 to midnight if you need to pick up somebody or or do something like that. So keep that in mind. Uh, Oh, and also, please, please, please. Do not park on the side of the expressway for waiting for people to pick up. It's a safety hazard and it's illegal. 
you better believe the port police is going to be out this week handing $50 tickets out for this this week. So please don't do that. That's not very safe. Taking a ferry? Well, you already know the system's being held together with positive vibes and duct tape. Only 14 boats are available. The system really needs 15 to run. It's happening with 300,000 people expected to sail this weekend. Edmonds-Kingston run, only one boat the entire time. Wait times are going to be ridiculous. And driving, you know the deal. I've been preaching this for years. Leave early, leave late. If you're already on the road by midday tomorrow, you're going to be in for a rocky drive. Consider early morning Thursday instead. Don't come back on Sunday either. Plan late Saturday to avoid the worst travel times. Patience, flexibility, and understanding. Things we all have in great reserve during the holidays is what we really need to get through over the next couple of days. So those are my tips. Good luck. Mm. All right. Well, this just tells me never travel on a holiday. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why do people still travel on holidays, by the way? Since we already no other choice, since well, we already extra know, days right? off. We love our families. Well, <laughs> yes, but as, as a family, you could agree to hold Thanksgiving any day of the year. That's I, true. I would, That's I would also choose true. The, less, the least crowded day and just hold it then. All right, March twenty third. <laughs> Happy Thanksgiving. Isn't that like the spring solstice or something? No, I don't yeah. know. It's the twenty first. <laughs> the shakeup at artificial intelligence company OpenAI which one year ago spawned ChatGPT. Sam Altman, the CEO who oversaw that hugely successful debut, is snapped up by Microsoft. My question for CBS tech editor Ian Schur, why'd he part ways with OpenAI? We don't really know. It's actually really fascinating. The board of directors on Friday before Thanksgiving, right? Usually when a company puts out news that they don't want anyone to know, they're trying to cover something up, Something bad happened. They're just getting rid of him. Think of the new people. Um, they put out this release saying that he had not been fully candid with the board. And everyone in the tech world suddenly gets on their phones and is like, what's going on? And over the weekend, all of the reporters dig up nothing. It seems as though there was just like bad communication over some issue or whatever. And the board of directors of the largest and most popular startup in the world decided to ditch their like icon CEO as the company's about to take off. It was crazy. Well, I read one analysis which said that there's been this ongoing debate as to whether open AI should commercialize chat GPT and just, you know, go for the gold or whether it should go slower because this has, there's so many potential dangers in this kind of uh, technology and that uh, Sam was on the side of, of going for the gold. Yes. Well, and, and part of what's interesting about OpenAI in general is that it started as a nonprofit, right? So originally the plan was let's come up with a way to responsibly develop AI in a safe way. And what ended up happening was that people like Sam Altman came and said, no, we can turn this into a big deal. And over the last couple of years, he's been able to get a ton of uh, funding, including from Microsoft, and that turned it into the big success that it is today. And, you know, one of the fastest growing consumer products of all time, changing, you know, potentially changing the tech world all over again, blah, blah, blah. So there is that tension that still exists between can we be a for-profit company and still hold on to our nonprofit roots? So far, it seems as though that debate 
did definitely spill out into public. CBS's Ian Shearer. And with the departure of Sam Altman, there was a letter released by a large number of employees of the company, almost all of them, claiming they plan to jump ship too. So what now? Look, the reality is that the board's job is to make sure that in the case of the foundation, right, in the in the nonprofit, to do what they were intended to do, to follow their mission. And in a for-profit company, a job, board's job is to make sure that the investors are being made whole and being well handled. And in both cases, I think this board probably failed, right? I think most people feel as though if you suddenly are not able to have the company work anymore, then you have not done your job correctly. So I don't know what's going to end up happening. Right now, Sam Altman has been hired by Microsoft, right? So he lost his job on Friday, yes. got a new job on Monday. And a number of the people who walked out the door with him have also been hired by Microsoft. And it seems as though there's kind of a, a promise of some sort that basically all of them will find a job at Microsoft. So Microsoft may end up the biggest winner on all of this, yeah. right? Well, Microsoft is to take over a startup for nothing. Yeah, I mean, and Microsoft is definitely not a nonprofit entity. No, <laughs> not by any stretch. <laughs> but that, I mean, that's look. The the reality is, and this may be one of those conversations for you know many years from now. But is a nonprofit able to exist in the tech world when it comes to this type of thing, right? Like, was it possible to, because it, part of why Sam Altman turned OpenAI into a for-profit to begin with was that they needed that investment to build the computers necessary to build what, was, what we have now. And so it's possible that, you know, the lesson is that nonprofits struggle to be able to innovate new technologies. It's actually a pretty fascinating backstory, as it turns out, because one of the original founders of OpenAI was a guy by the name of Elon Musk. And back in 2018, he decided it wasn't moving fast enough, pulled his money out. So suddenly OpenAI needed money to buy those super expensive computers. And now we see what happens. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. Holidays are here. People are going to be running up their credit card bills. And the question is, how does that affect your credit card score? Rod Griffin is Senior Director of Public Education and Advocacy for Experian, which is the credit score company. Rod, welcome. And first, tell me, can you, can you reveal how a credit score is calculated? Sure. There's really no big secret. With credit scores, there are every credit score, there are lots of them, but they all look at your credit report. So the first thing to know is you need to take take care of your credit report or your credit history. What they're going to look at in a credit score is first and foremost, your payment history. Are you paying your bills on time? And are you paying them on time every time? If you're late on your payments, that's going to wreck your scores faster than anything else. So you have to pay those bills on time every time. Second, they're going to look at the balances on your credit cards as compared to those credit card limits. So do you have high balances compared to your credit limits. If you do, that's going to lower your, your credit scores because the higher your balances are, the greater the risk that you won't be able to repay them. You, know, you could be in an accident, you could have an illness, something could happen in the job market and you wouldn't be able to repay that debt. So you wanna keep those credit card balances as low as possible. Ideally pay them in full each month if you can. That's easier said than done. Life interferes sometimes, but keep them as low as you can. Uh, from there, it's going to look at how long you've used your credit, uh, how 
the mix of types of credit you have are. So do you have you know, different kinds of credit, installment loans, credit cards, charge cards, that sort of thing over time? They're going to look at what you've done recently. Have you applied for new credit recently? Have you taken on more debt recently? Have you paid things off? So what's happening in the last three to six months? Those are sort of the the key things. Uh, But the real thing you have to know is you have to pay your balances on time. Pardon me, you have to pay your bills on time and you have to keep those balances low. Those two things will account for something like 60 to 70 percent of the credit score. What time of year do most people rack up high credit card limits and maybe default on them? Is that why we're talking about this now? Is it the holiday season? People charge year round. But of course, the holiday season, we tend to spend more. And more than half of people tell us they feel like they spend too much at the holidays. Uh, And so it's a it's a key time that we see credit card balances increase uh, and debts grow. Uh, but generally, people will pay them off eventually. <laughs> and so, you know, that's the good news. Uh, but it is a time when we tend to take on more debt. Uh, and we've actually had people tell us this year that they're trying not to do that. Mm-hmm. They're looking at using debit card or cash payments this year more. About half of the people we've talked to uh, said that they want to use debit card payments this year instead of credit cards so that they can avoid taking on some of that debt. Uh, and Others, you know, about the same amount, tell us they're they're planning to reduce those debts over the course of the new year. So they're already planning and making those New Year's resolutions. What What do you think is the catalyst for that? This pullback on debt. Well, you know, we're all seeing what's happened with inflation, and we, you know, our survey recently said the same thing. You know, the majority of people told us that inflation is top of mind. The cost of groceries, you know, with Thanksgiving coming up and the holiday season, you know, the the cost of the things we typically have on the table have all gone up. Fuel costs are actually, you know, down a bit from where they were, but they're still, you know, high. Uh, you know, so people are more thoughtful about how much things cost right now, and so that's driving some of their focus on on how to to manage debt and to prevent taking on debt if they can. I think people wonder, well, what does happen if my credit score drops too low? Do they yank my card? I mean, is there a threshold below which if you go, it, your your life just uh, goes south? Yeah, no, I mean, so credit scores are only really important if you're applying for new credit. So if, you know, if you're applying for a new card or you're applying for a loan to get that big screen TV here in a, a month or two before the Super Bowl, uh, you know, they they are going to check your credit report and your credit scores. Credit scores predict the likelihood that you'll repay a loan as agreed or a mm-hmm. debt as agreed. And that's really all they're doing is predicting that that risk. If you have an account, that credit score isn't being checked. They'll, they may check your credit report from time to time. If you make a new charge, your balances go up. Lenders will do what we call account reviews and see where you are. They might offer you an increase in your credit limit if you're managing your credit well, Um, but generally they're not going to check credit scores at that point. Um, So, but a a credit score is important to give you a sense of where you stand in terms of credit risk. So it's a good idea to check your credit report regularly. Uh, You can check your credit report once a year, once a week now at annualcreditreport.com. Uh, so you can get 156 credit reports a year for free and it won't affect wow. credit scores at all. 
Uh, so you should check your credit reports. That's now permanent. Uh, and also you know, check your credit scores and get the risk factors that go with them and use tools that are available now to help what we call boost the credit score. So we have a service called Experian Boost that actually lets people proactively add their positive cell phone payments, their positive utility payments, their positive streaming service payments, and today, even potentially their rent payments, uh, and, and in the future, perhaps insurance payments as well. They're all credit-like. And what our research shows is if a person is paying those bills on time, especially if they have a limited credit history, haven't had credit for very long, or have had some issues, but they're paying them all, they're, they're likely a better credit risk than their traditional credit reporter score shows. So if you go to experian.com slash boost, you can give us permission to access those payments and we'll add them each as separate accounts to your credit report, capture up to two years of information. We see scores go up for about two out of three people on average, about 13 points. So it could be a powerful tool to give people more control because in the end, what we really want is to give everyone financial power. We want them to be able to control their own financial futures and destinies and work with lenders to get the credit they need. Rod Griffin is Senior Director of Public Education Advocacy for Experian. Thank you, Rod. Thank you so much. Your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. He's described as a quirky guy. He's from a tiny town in New Hampshire. No car, no furniture, no TV, no computer, and no children. But he had an investment account with millions in it, and he left it all to his town. Here's the story from CBS's Christopher Cruz. For years, Jeffrey Holt was a resident and caretaker of a mobile home park in Hinsdale, near Vermont and Massachusetts. He lived a simple life, riding his lawnmower and reading the newspaper. When he died in June at the age of 82, he left almost $4 million to the town of 4,200 to be spent on education, health, recreation, and culture. How will it be spent? The town hasn't decided. The plan for now is to spend the interest, about $150,000 a year year. Christopher Cruz, CBS News. And Jeffrey Holt's friends say he invested the money he made from working regular jobs during his life. And they say he often led a a quiet life, sitting by the brook, studying financial publications. The Associated Press spoke with Holt's best friend and former employer. Jeffrey was an interesting individual. He was he was not one to miss work. He just showed up and did what he had to. But he didn't want the expense of having a car. Although he worked mostly as a laborer in his later years, he had a master's degree, briefly taught social studies at a high school. He was brought up to be very frugal. Oftentimes when I was talking to him, he'd make reference to his father telling him that he shouldn't spend money, he should be more frugal with his with his money and be careful of how he spent it because it wouldn't last. I guess he took that to heart. There's been no formal gathering to discuss ideas for the money since local officials were just notified about this in September. Some residents have proposed upgrading the town hall clock, restoring buildings, maybe buying a new ballot counting machine. I was looking up the, the town, too. Turns out they have the oldest post office in the nation. Wow. I know. Well, not anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, they've got lots of money to spend now. And now from the Gene Ursula Show, which starts at 9, here is G. Scott. What's up, y'all? So did you know that we had a, a clothing optional park? Yo, I was yesterday years old. You know what I mean? Because we already have, look, in the United States of America, we have already uh, these parks, these new parks that are shrinking all over the country. So we don't have as many uh, as you would think, especially in other countries. But the fact that it was here in Seattle, 
Never knew about it. Ursula's been living in Seattle for a yeah, long time. Exactly. She never knew about it. Um, matter of fact, real quick, Sully, you, anybody y'all know, you knew about it? Sully, you no. knew about it? I'd heard thing about it, yes, okay. but I didn't really think it was a real thing. I mean, it was like okay. an urban legend to me. <laughs> mm, yeah. So anyways, so it comes to find out that it seems like that they don't, someone, some one person has come in and that is the one that made a $500,000 donation for there to be a child's park to be built there instead of continuing on with this nudist park thing. By, mm-hmm. by the way, it's not that big. It's just a little little yeah. section, it's Colleen. Tiny. Yeah. A little tiny. But- I'm looking at it right now on the official seattle.gov website yeah. because, I mean, it doesn't look like they endorse any sort of nudity there officially, right? I think it's an unofficial mm-hmm. nude park right. or an official one. Right. Because <laughs> there is enough room for a volleyball net above the quiet picnics and sunbathing below. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, That's the only way they mention it. So they have haven't found out again someone came in and made a half a million dollar private donation and they don't know who it is that made this donation so this isn't one of those things where it's going to be all the taxpayers are going to be funding and paying for this no there's just one person who has remained anonymous that came in and was like nah we want to put a child's park here no more news i'm sure it's somebody that didn't go to the prom I'm sure, you know what I mean? (laughs) I'm sure somebody got stood up for the prom. On the .gov website, they say that it's to address the the gap in like play areas in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's not a lot of spots to take your kids. And so they're like, Hey, this is a nice one. Maybe there's a few motives for putting a playground there, but I was just wondering, cause it sounds like it, could it be that this uh, generous storm, this is a pretty well to do neighborhood said, uh, I'm tired of the nudity in the park and a good way to get rid of it without causing a backlash would be to fund a playground. I mean, it's genius, right? Yeah. It, it's interesting. I, I think that we have seen, and we see a lot of that. People pretend like, hey, I want to do something good for everyone, but really, it's really just about them. Should right? we have an official or unofficial nudist park, though? I mean, should people who like to be out in nature in the nude and enjoy the sunshine have a spot to do that? Don't we believe in being inclusive? Right. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Well, hold on. I know what I think. Especially if nobody, I mean, it's not like we get news yeah, reports yeah. Of, of harm being done there. I need this on record right now. Yeah. Dave Ross, what do you think? Do you think that a nude beach should continue to thrive here in Seattle? Well, I have in, in Hawaii where the beaches are, you know, technically all public and it's more appropriate. But I, I just, the climate here doesn't seem to, you know, just scream nude beach. Well, to each their own. Apparently people still like it. And honestly, if everybody accepts it, what's the harm? Even if it's not a nude beach, you go to a beach in Hawaii and and basically the, you know, the strings that you wear these days for it, it, you don't have to use your imagination, right? Like we're just so afraid of Plus little kids are always running around with that clothes anyway. Yeah. (laughs) Do you guys, do you you guys ever get uncomfortable being at a a beach? Meaning like, hmm, how can I explain this? Get get uncomfortable is like, you know, like you said, the strings that that No, that I don't occur. get uncomfortable. I'm working on body acceptance. And so I think if somebody it loves their body enough in whatever form it is to be at the beach, yeah. let them. Well, what I'm trying to say, Colleen, is that sometimes I might be with my wife and I'm hanging out and we're having a good conversation. And let's say we're eating a ham sandwich <laughs> and somebody walks by with a string. Mm-hmm. And I can continue to pretend like I'm still eating the ham sandwich, <laughs> and and it makes the conversation awkward. There might be a pause. Wait, you're, you're, you and your wife. You're saying, you're saying there's something that could draw your attention away from a ham sandwich. Is that what you're saying? 
Yes! I see. Okay. You try not, try well, not to. You know, uh, you have a right to eat your ham sandwich in peace, and so you could probably say that this nudity was interfering with your ability yeah. to feed yourself. Yeah. This will be an interesting debate, because there is a, a public comment. If you look up the park, the Denny uh, Blaine Park, you'll yeah. find wh- December 2nd, I think it is, or maybe Six, it's December, December 6th, 6th. Yeah. there's going to be public comment. What if the nudists show up, and they're like, hey, our right to stay. Hey, hey, hold, just, just hold. Show, just show up with clothes You on. won't go. Now... <laughs> I think that they should be look the fact that none of us none of us knew about this part this yeah. beach in the first place yeah. that is all the more reason why they should stay Colleen. All right. Yeah. So Let's see how this goes. I'm who who went to go do a report on this? Who went? Oh, James Lynch. Oh, okay. Our reporter, James. Okay, see y'all. <laughs> we should never have mentioned it. It was going so well. <laughs> And on Tuesdays, we go to David Farenthold, Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter at the New York Times. David, I want to get your take on this whole uh, gag order thing. I spent quite a bit of time yesterday listening to the arguments before the uh, Court of Appeals on whether Donald Trump should be allowed to say nasty things about the judge and the uh, the staff. And his lawyers seem to be saying, uh, this is a special circumstance. He's, here's a presidential candidate who, part of his campaign, is taking on the government. And, you know, the courts are part of government. So uh, basically anything goes. That it seems to be his argument. It did not seem like it won the day yesterday. We haven't gotten the ruling from the, 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 the appeals court, but it did not seem like they were very uh, sympathetic to Trump's argument. No. So is is it fair to say that Donald Trump should be held responsible if a, a tweet or an ex of his, whatever they call now, uh, sets off some crackpot? Because they're pointing out that the the. the Gag order was based on this incident shortly after he was indicted, where this woman from Texas made a death threat, death threat to the uh, the judge, and the uh, the lawyer for Trump said, "And you know, you, you can't blame Trump for that because this woman was sitting in front of her TV watching the news, drinking beer the whole time, and basically had a, a history of, <laughs> I guess, making death threats against uh, courts. Can he be held responsible for that kind of thing?" Well, I mean, I think they're, the, the point of the gag order is that they think that if he keeps doing that, he keeps making threats against this judge, more people will try, take him seriously and act on him. I think after January 6th, we can not we can dispense with the argument that nobody takes Trump seriously. Um, so like, the thing is, he's not president now. He's running for president, but he's not the president now. And if anybody else was in that situation and you were making public threats against the judge, especially an influential person with a big following, like imagine this is Alex Jones or – you know, a, a Taylor Swift or somebody that had a big following that listened to their every word. Yeah. You know, you couldn't do that. You get in trouble. This, those people will get punished worse than Trump has. Yeah. So in other words, the, the, the lawyers are trying to carve out a special privilege for him. Yeah, but saying he's running for president. Well, fine. Like, you know, then if I wanted to make threats against the judge in my case, I could say I'm running for mayor. You know, exactly. There's, there's no there's no special dispensation to say you're running for office, which means you can attack the judge in your own trial. And now, of course, now you're right. The justices, uh, the, the appeals court justice anyway, seemed really skeptical about Trump's argument. But this is headed to the Supreme Court. What do you think the Supreme Court will do? I mean, you know, it's hard to predict with this court, but I have not seen from them a lot of tendency to protect Trump personally. I mean, think of their rejection of his, you know, the idea that he could keep his tax returns or the idea that he could say, you know, their rejection of his election case. So I don't see a huge precedent, a huge appetite for this because what's the standard they're going to set, right? They they don't want to just say like, well, this is a special rule for Donald Trump. 
how could they draw a rule that sounds reasonable that would apply more broadly? You know, like like we said, anybody who's running for office is allowed to say whatever they want. Or there's a running for office exemption from you know gag orders in court cases. I, I just don't see them doing that just because it's something that's so foundational for the court system. But I've been wrong before about them. <laughs> All right, moving on to the uh, whole Israel-Palestine thing. Uh, we've had demonstrations around the country. Uh, I believe that... Uh, it's fair to say Palestinian student protesters are saying that they're suffering a discrimination. Uh, where does that stand? Well, it's, you know, there has been college campuses have been a huge flash, flashpoint for this. And mostly, I think it's part because there's such a huge, even at very liberal schools, there's such a gap between what the students want and what the alumni want, the donors, more particularly the donors want. And I think, yeah, Palestinian students have said, you know, why can't we say from the river to the sea, Palestine should be free? You know, that's what we want. That, that means the land for our people. You know, and I think the donors and Jewish students have said, well, you're you know, implicitly calling for the destruction of Israel. So, you know, I think in the past people have tried to set uh, the line that like you can't call for violence. You know, you can't you can't advocate violence. You can advocate political solutions, but not violence. And they, you know, it's hard in this case to untangle what's implicit violence yeah. and what's actual violence. Yeah. And who who gets to determine whether a, a motto does not expressly involve a death threat constitutes something threatening. I mean, have, have courts ruled on this idea that if you say from the, from the river to the sea, that that, that there's an implicit threat in that, even though none is actually stated? No, I, I don't know the law well enough to say if there's some other thing that's like this, but that is the difficulty these college campuses have had is that, you know, you know, it's okay to support Israel because Israel's, you know, the seizure of that land is, is a fait accompli. It happened 50, 60 years ago. Mm-hmm. To say that it should happen again, but the Palestinians should be seizing it, that's an implicit call for violence. You can see how both sides would feel like that was, you know, unfair to them. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's a very difficult issue, and I don't think there's really any sort of legal precedent that lets you draw a, a line here that's certainly not a line that everybody would agree with. Where do you think uh, the, the, the – what's the status of the public relations battle? Uh, between Israel and the Palestinians now. I mean, Israel has been, I've, I've been watching this. It's been fascinating. Israel uh, gets soldiers into these tunnels and they they go to great pains to uh, issue these videos showing the weapons caches and the tunnels and everything to try and point out that these hospitals were chosen deliberately by Hamas either to in hopes that they would shield their operation or uh, create such carnage that there'd be a backlash. You know, I, I think you've seen a lot of people saying, well, Israel is, you know, winning the military war, but losing the PR war. But I actually think that they're PR wise, I think they have done fairly well. I mean, think about what we thought of as the worst case scenario two or three weeks ago, which was that Iran, Hezbollah, you know, and militias in Syria would all attack Israel at once so that the, the world would sort of come, it could come to take the Palestinian side in a very forceful way. And we haven't really seen that happen. There's been some protests, but there has not been this sort of you know, overwhelming threat to the state of Israel that we thought we might see. Um, I think the big test for them will be, how does this end? You know, and when it ends, is Netanyahu or somebody like him in charge in Israel would sort of seal their reduced standing in the world, you know, or is there a path for them to get this back after the war is over? Yeah, it seems to me, it's just my opinion, that what's what's missing on the Palestinian side is a group that would call itself Palestinians against Hamas. Because right. my understanding is there, that's the whole point here, right? That there are a lot of Palestinians who just don't agree with Hamas's rule. They haven't had the chance to uh, to call an election, to do anything about it. And there must be a substantial number of people like that. I mean, if somebody uh, had a demonstration where Palestinians 
carried signs saying uh, Palestinians against Hamas also mm-hmm. demand justice, you know, from Israel or something right. like that. It it might uh, go down a little easier. And I think that sort of points to the difficulty about what happens when this is over. You know, certainly, the, you know, the Palestinians don't want to be ruled directly by Israel. But, you know, Israel, it's not really in at least Netanyahu's demands for there to be a, a Palestinian authority that's not Hamas. Right. The, Hamas, you know, they don't want Hamas to run, run the Gaza Strip, but they don't really have anybody else. They want to run it in Hamas's place. So unless somebody can figure that out within the Gaza Strip, how do you create an authority that can govern that area without it being Hamas or without Hamas undermining it? Yeah. You know, it, it seems like we're just headed for a repeat of what's happening now. What's the talk about around the office there at the New York Times? Are, are people predicting that this, uh, I mean, we're, we're apparently on the cusp of having a, a hostage uh, release, which would be great. Uh, would that signal a cooling off period or are we still headed towards a wider war? Well, I think what the Biden administration would like is for this ceasefire. You know, I think usually the expectation is that the, one of the conditions of a hostage release would be a, fi- a ceasefire of five days or three days, something like that. But Biden's fear and Netanyahu's I mean, Biden's hope and Netanyahu's fear is that that becomes the end of the war. You know, that after five days of humanitarian pause, that Israel won't feel like it has the international standing to start bombing again. Um, and especially will have gotten the, many of the hostages back, which was their, one of the justifications for invading. So I think Israel, Netanyahu is fearing that if he does stop, he won't be able to start back up again. And then that will leave his objectives yeah. in, in Gaza half accomplished. But I think Biden would really like to see it be over and have this be the end of it. And, and this would be sort of a soft way to, to get to a ceasefire. Yeah, but there's no chance of Netanyahu not annihilating Hamas because it's going to be his. I mean, apparently it's going to be his last act as president because once this is over, they're voting him out from what I understand. Yeah, and that's just, that's the problem is like, you know, he doesn't have a plan really to get, you know, I guess his plan would just be to invade more of Gaza. But, you know, Israel, we talked about earlier, Israel's international standing declines every day, especially after a pause when they would come back and start bombing again. I, you know, I, I don't know if he can, if he has the backing within his country or outside of his country to truly do what it takes to root out Hamas, you know, everybody or every leader. David Farenthold from the New York Times. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News, the podcast. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. You can find our podcast weekday mornings right at 930. And if you subscribe, you will never miss the Daily Dose of Kindness.